up to Galatians chapter 2. Today was going to be the beginning of a new series, but we had that pesky snow day in December. And so today is the last sermon in a series which I called The Bucket List, my bucket list of sermons. Uh, Where normally, you know, I'd be going through a book of the Bible, and we will start that again next week. We're going to go through Jonah for a month um, and start study that book of the Bible and then go into another one. But but this was a break, and I, and I wanted to take the break to, uh, to do my bucket list, to say, what, if this were the last sermon series that I could ever preach to you, if this were the last time I ever saw you, what would be the main things that I would want to get across to you to make sure that you understood about the Christian life? Now, it's been a while. This morning, I was actually racking my brain to say, now, what were they all again? <laughs> uh, but, but we started a while ago with the, the gospel message. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever thought, but more loved than you ever dared to imagine. We are saved by absolute grace. God loves us. And then we saw that we are adopted. That is, when you become a Christian, God welcomes you into his family, and you get all the benefits and, and uh, inheritance that belong to a child of God. We saw that when you become a Christian, you are brought into freedom. Uh, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And we find rest in Christ, but that rest is not a, a, a then freedom to do whatever we want, but it's a freedom to now obey Christ and walk in the life-giving way of following his commands. And then we saw that his commands are summarized in one word, which is love. That to follow the way of Jesus is to follow the way of love, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about the process of change. How do we become more mature as Christians? How do we become the people we'd like to be? And we saw that it's the Holy Spirit's work. That our role is to stay connected to Jesus, to stay connected to the Spirit. And through the means of grace, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to transform us to make us more like Christ. We highlighted a couple of those things. One was the Bible. We need to start with the Bible. Instead of starting with our phones or starting with self-help books or starting with Oprah, we start with the Bible and we ask God, what do you have to say for me? And then we talked about the importance of coming to church and how the fellowship of Christians is one of the means that God uses to help us to grow to be more like Christ. And then on Christmas, we talked about Jesus and how Jesus is worth it. He is the greatest treasure. He is worth giving up everything to gain him. It is always smart to give up something of lesser value to get something of greater value, and Jesus is of the greatest value. And so today, because of my self-imposed deadline, I have one last opportunity to talk to you about the most important things in the Christian life, and there's lots left that we could talk about. But what I want to impress upon you today is the absolute centrality of caring for the poor to your life as a Christian. If this really were my last sermon series, it would be pastoral malpractice not to talk about the importance of caring for the poor. It's such a central theme to the Bible that there are hundreds, literally thousands of passages I could preach from today, but I picked Galatians 2. So please turn there now in your Bibles if you haven't already to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians as a whole is a book about the Apostle Paul having a fight with this church. And he's fighting to make sure they understand the gospel. See, Paul planted a church, and then he went away, as he often did. He planted churches and went other places. And then he heard that there was trouble back in these churches in Galatia. He heard that other people had come along behind him and started preaching a different gospel. See, when Paul preached the gospel and founded the church, he said, the true gospel, that is, uh, if you want to be saved, you believe in Jesus. 
It's free grace. Christ died on the cross for your sins, and he offers that freely to you. If you just believe that, you're saved. That's it. These other people came along afterwards, and they said, that's part of the story, but Paul missed something. You also have to live like a Jew. These folks came behind, and they said, now, if you're, if you're a guy, you've got to get circumcised, because it said to do that in the Old Testament. And if, if you're not, it, you, you still have to obey all the food laws and practice the ceremonies. And basically, you have to keep all the laws in the Old Testament. Yes, believe in Jesus, but also keep the law, and then you'll be saved. When Paul hears that this is happening, he is obviously ticked off. So he writes a scathing letter, which is Galatians, and he destroys these false teachers, and he teaches again very clearly, no, the true gospel is you are saved by grace alone, through the death of Christ alone, plus nothing. That's what the book is about. Now in chapter 2, Paul is reminding the Galatians that the gospel that he taught them is the true gospel that he didn't make up, that he received from God, and that everyone else agreed on was the true gospel. And he proves this by telling a story about the time when he went to Jerusalem and he compared notes with the apostles, Peter and John. And everybody agreed on the true gospel. So I'm going to read chapter 2, but what I want you to pay attention to mostly is a couple verses at the end. A little statement, almost a postscript, that seems unrelated at first to the rest of the chapter, but is profoundly important. So here's Galatians 2. This is Paul defending his gospel. He says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they had circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so did you follow what happened there? Paul goes to Jerusalem. He goes to talk with the other apostles and compare notes on the gospel. The false teachers had said, you've got to be circumcised and follow the law to be saved. So Paul brings Titus, a Greek, non-Jew, who's not circumcised, who's not following the law, and everybody agrees, no, he's saved. You don't have to become a Jew. Salvation is by grace alone. And then they have this division of labor where they decide, you know, Peter says, I'm going to focus on the Jews and getting them converted, and you can go to the Gentiles and focus on getting them saved. But everybody agrees on the basic message that salvation is through Christ alone. Now, what fascinates me about this story is that this is a very deep theological moment. Okay, these guys are having a, a theological conference. They are wrestling with doctrinal truth. They are trying to hammer out the nature of the gospel. 
But once they do, once they get that hammered out, maybe they write up their statement or you know, they say, here's what the gospel is, they don't then wipe off their hands and say, now we're done. Instead, the, the whole conference ends intensely practically as Peter grabs Paul on the way out of the door and he says, now just make sure, now that we've established what the gospel is, make sure you don't forget about the poor. And I can see Paul almost indignantly saying, this is the very thing I was going to do. See, I love this moment because it blows up some of the categories that we have created within Christianity. On the one hand, we have this category of conservative, evangelical Christians, kind of us. And the stereotype is evangelical Christians are very obsessed with the gospel and getting people saved. We often sound like Peter and Paul in verses 1 through 9 as they're hashing out, what is the gospel? What is, how do you really get saved? What's the order of salvation? Calling out false teachers, clarifying the gospel, going out in mission, telling people about Jesus. That's what evangelicals do. Then on the other hand, you have liberal Christians. And the stereotype there is they've traded in the true gospel for a social gospel. They don't care a lot about people getting saved, but they care a lot about the poor. And so you find them doing things like crusading for higher minimum wage or more social programs, things like that. And they often sound like Peter and Paul in verse 10. Just make sure you remember the poor. That's the important thing. But what I love is that biblically there's no tension between the two. There's no tension between the true gospel and care for the poor. You don't have to choose between caring for people's souls and caring for people's bodies. The same Peter and Paul who fought tenaciously for the true gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone ended that conversation by saying, now, you're going to take care of the poor, right? Well, absolutely. I wouldn't dream of not doing that. That happens because, and this is the first point today, those who believe the true gospel always remember the poor. Those who really get the gospel, those who believe the true gospel, always remember the poor. We see this here in Galatians. This is all over the book of Acts. Um, You don't have to flip there, but in the book of Acts, this is a story of the beginning of the church. And as you read through the book, you see over and over people encountering the gospel and then immediately caring for the poor. At the very beginning in Acts 2, Peter has just preached a sermon, uh, an evangelistic sermon. Th- literally thousands of people get saved. And here's the description of what happens right after this in Acts 2, 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad hearts and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just right off the bat, thousands of people get saved. And the first thing they do is they continue to gather together in worship and they see, oh, you are in need? Well, I've got this extra field. I'm going to sell that and give you the money. And they take care of one another. In chapter 6 of Acts, you find out that, that in, their, in their desire to take care of, of the widows and those who didn't have uh, food, 
that there was a problem and that some of the widows were being neglected, that some weren't getting the food that they should be getting, others were getting, it was kind of a favoritism sort of thing, and they bring it to the apostles. And the apostles don't say, that's not our problem, talk to the government. We're not in the business of helping the poor. Instead, the apostles say, all right, let's, 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 let's find some guys in the church, godly people, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, and then commission them to take care of these people who are in need. That's the, the flow of Christianity throughout the New Testament is when they begin to encounter the true gospel and understand the nature of salvation, the first thing people begin to do is to take care of the poor. Now, why is that? Why is that throughout history, even today, that, that the first thing that happens when people understand the gospel is they begin to have a heart of compassion for the poor? What is it about Christianity that compels us to do that? It might be helpful to think about that through contrast with another religion. Okay, so let's think a little bit about Hinduism. Hinduism is a religion in which it is not an inevitable, natural response of people to care for the poor. In fact, it's the opposite. In India, they have a thing called the caste system. It's a lot like our class system, although more stratified and harder. There's five different levels in society, five different castes, and whatever you're born into, you're stuck in that caste. The upper castes are like our upper classes. It's uh, you know, the religious leaders, the politicians, business owners, people with money. And you've got the lower caste, and the lower you go, the worse your jobs are until you get finally to the lowest caste, which is almost isn't even a caste. They just call them sometimes the untouchables, the Dalits. And these are the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, and they do all the gross, dirty work that no one else will do. Respectable people don't even touch them. That's why they're called untouchable. And in India, there's probably about 200 million people in that caste. Now, unlike Christianity, Hinduism doesn't teach compassion for the poorest of the poor. Unlike Christianity, when, when someone becomes a really serious Hindu, you don't see them going out and starting an orphanage, like Mother Teresa did. And they do this because of their beliefs. Now, the core beliefs of Hinduism are karma and reincarnation. Okay, reincarnation is the belief that after you die, you are born again into a new life. It's a circle, right? You die in one life and you're born again into a new life. And karma says you get what you deserve. So whatever life you're born into, that's the reward for what you've done in previous lives. If you had a good life before, if you were a good person, then you are born. That explains why you're born into an upper caste, for example. But if you were a bad person in your previous life, then the punishment for that is that you drop down a few notches. And if you've been really bad for a really long time, well, that's why you're born and untouchable. So you put those things together and it's a powerful justification for the caste system and for doing nothing to help the poor. Because your placement in life depends upon your birth and your birth depends upon your former lives. So really, you're just getting what you deserve. In a system like that, why would you help the poor? You're just going against karma. So in Hinduism, you don't get people who naturally inevitably help the poor and said the whole system is skewed in the other direction. Now, I say that not to pick on Hinduism, nor am I saying that all Hindus are bad people. There are plenty of Hindus who go against the foundational teachings of their uh, religious system because they're made in the image of God and they know inherently that it's right to care for the poor. Okay. 
What I'm saying is if you take seriously the foundational principles of Hinduism, it leads you in the opposite direction of disregard for the poor and of pride in your own previous accomplishments. But Christianity is the exact opposite. The fundamental principle of Hinduism is you get what you deserve, but the fundamental principle of Christianity is you don't get what you deserve. None of us do. Christianity is all about grace for the needy. The basic story of Christianity could be told this way. You and I are untouchables. We are the lowest of the low. We have no hope. But Jesus, from the highest caste, gave up everything he had to take the lowest position, becoming a human, becoming a slave, becoming uh, obedient even to death on a cross, so that through his sacrifice, you and I could have his riches. We could be forgiven. We could be accepted and reconciled by God. At one point, Paul summarizes the story of Christianity this way. He says, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So when you get that, when you understand what the gospel really is, well, two things happen. One, you start to tell everybody the good news. And you begin to help the poor. Because the very nature of Christianity is God showing grace to us in need. And when we get that, we can't help but show grace to those in need. That's why Peter and Paul, after they hammer out the gospel, the last thing that they say is, now of course, of course, you're going to live this out by showing the grace of God to those who are in need. Christians, remember the poor. That's a basic principle. What does that mean in real life? So I want to spend the rest of the time answering two questions. Who are the poor, and what does it mean to remember them? So real Christians, when you understand the gospel, you are inevitably propelled to remember the poor. But what does that mean? Who are the poor, and how do we remember them? All right, well, in general, when the Bible uses this word poor, uh, it means what we think it means. It means, first of all, people who are in desperate need. That's the obvious one. So people who don't have the necessities of life, whether it's food or shelter or clothing or a day like today, heat, clean drinking water, things like that. People who don't have what they need to survive. That's part of it. But biblically, the definition is even bigger than that because the poor also includes people who are in vulnerable populations. Yeah, people in desperate need and people in vulnerable populations. That is, people who, by virtue of who they are, are more likely to experience poverty. People who need more help to get by than maybe those who are in power positions in the culture. And when you read through the whole Bible, you see three groups that jump out, that are repeated over and over and over, of these vulnerable groups that God wants us to pay special attention to. They're widows and orphans and immigrants. I'll give you a few verses. You can write down these references, look them up later. This is just the tip, tip of the iceberg. Isaiah 1.17. Isaiah 1.17. says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Exodus 22, verses 21 and 22. And you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Zechariah 7.10 says, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Then James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one un- oneself unstained from the world. God cares about orphans and widows and immigrants. He is watching out for those groups and he expects his people to watch out for those groups. In fact, when you read through the Old Testament, you see God bringing judgment on his people in the Old Testament. It is specifically because they have continued to practice their religious rituals while neglecting to care for the poor, the widow, the orphans, and the immigrants. Now, why does God care about those three groups? because those are the groups that are the vulnerable populations. They're the weak ones in society. In the male-dominated society of that time, widows and orphans were especially vulnerable. They had no one to protect them. There was no man in the family to guard their rights. They could have their homes taken away, be left penniless with no source of income. And immigrants, why then? Well, just like today, there's always been a lot of anti-immigrant feeling And it's hard for immigrants to fit in. It's hard for them to be treated fairly. They, too, were vulnerable to exploitation. The same principles apply today. Widows, orphans, immigrants still are vulnerable. We should care for literal widows and literal orphans and literal immigrants. But the principle extends even beyond that. They're not the only vulnerable populations. Yeah, widows and orphans need help, but so do single moms who might not be widowed but are in similar situations. Kids from broken families who may nominally have fathers, but they're not really there. Yeah, we still need to take care and look out for immigrants and refugees, but also other minorities who may be technically American citizens, but experience persecution and are vulnerable to racism. There's a lot of vulnerable populations that we have to care for. And you think of the unborn, children in their mother's womb vulnerable to being killed. People who are in jail and the kids and families they leave behind, folks that are in nursing homes, people who are physically and mentally disabled, all of these would fall under the category of the poor in the full biblical sense. People who are either in desperate need or in a vulnerable population and susceptible to exploitation. That's who the poor are. Now, Before I move on, I need to make a clarification. Those are the the two points that define the poor, but I also need to throw this out there. The poor are also people who are of infinite value in the eyes of God. See, the world thinks that rich people are of more value than poor people. That rich people are better people, or worth more, or more important. The world thinks that, but not Christianity. Christianity doesn't teach that rich people are better than poor people. In fact, if there's any favoritism in the Bible, it's actually towards poor people. God has a soft spot in his heart for those who are poor. And just remember some of the things that Jesus said. Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And he also said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
If you had to pick a favorite, what would you think? God is predisposed towards the poor. The culture says rich people are better. There's something inherently better about those who have more stuff. They, they must be better people. No, no, no. The Bible says all people are made in the image of God. All people are equally valuable. All people are equally sinners in need of a Savior. And if God has any sort of inclination towards one group or another, it's towards the poor. Remember, we just celebrated Christmas. Where was Jesus born? born in a barn because his parents were too poor. He lived his life as an adult, as a homeless adult. Now we have in this church people all across the economic spectrum. I'm so grateful for that. That's wonderful diversity. We have people who are poor. We have people who are rich. Now if you are one of the poor people in our church, that does not make you a lesser person. It just means you have less stuff. And if you're a rich person, it doesn't make you a better person. It just means that you have more stuff. And frankly, it means it's harder for you to be a Christian. Sometimes when you're rich, you begin to think that you're the savior of the poor. But there's only one savior. All the rest of us are sinners in need of grace. And we're just trying to follow him. So know who the poor are. Poor people who are in need, vulnerable to exploitation, and incredibly valuable in the eyes of God. That brings us to our final question. The command is, remember the poor. We know who the poor are. How do we remember them? What's it mean to remember the poor? Isn't that interesting? I, I mean, I love that word. The command is, remember the poor. Not just a straight care for the poor, feed the poor. But the command is, remember the poor. And I think that's there because one of the first problems that rich people have is actually forgetting that poor people exist. So the first aspect of remembering the poor is remembering, simply remembering that the poor exist. See, this is one of the limits of being human. We're not good at remembering things that aren't in front of our faces. So if you're not poor, if you, um, if you live in a good neighborhood, your kids go to good schools, You've got a good job, all your coworkers are just like you, and all the TV shows that you watch are about middle-class people with middle-class problems. It's easy to forget the poor, to let their problems fade into the distance and be replaced by your first-world problems of not being able to afford a big vacation this year or having to settle for a 50-inch TV. So the first thing we have to do is remember that the poor exist. Remember that there is a big world out there I've told you this before, but if you make $30,000 or more, that puts you in the top 1% globally of the richest people in the world. So, 30, I know not everybody here does, but if you make $30,000 or more, you are a one percenter. Nearly half of the world's population, more than 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. More than 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty of less than 1.2, sorry, $1.25 a day. 750 million people lack adequate access to clean drinking water. 2,300 people die every day from diarrhea caused by poor sanitation. 
And I'm, I had to look those up. I'm sure you couldn't rattle off those statistics. But I'm also sure that's not the first time you've heard those. I'm sure there's nobody here going, wait a minute, there's a lot of poor people in the world? I had no idea. We know. We've heard it. But when's the last time you thought about it? And what does that say about us? It, it, it tells us, I think, at the very least, we have trouble remembering the poor. We remember them when there's news, when there's a disaster, when someone like me brings it up. But after we give a little money, assuage our guilt, we go back to normal life and forget that the poor exist. The same thing happens in our country, too. We don't have the same extent of poverty in our country that you will find in others, but we do have poverty. And somehow we can still manage to forget about the poor, even though they're all around us. You see, poor people aren't just in the inner cities or in isolated rural communities. They certainly aren't all lazy bums sitting at home collecting welfare. They're hardworking people working low-wage jobs that make life as we know it, and I'll include myself here, as rich people, possible. I mean, just think about this. If you're out to eat and your waitress is over 25, this is probably not a temporary life choice, getting her through college or something like that. This is probably her career. And if your, waitress, if, if your career is waitressing, you're going to be poor. You can work as hard as you can, as many hours as you can, but you're always going to have trouble making rent, paying for child care, keeping the heat on. So when you go out to eat, remember that your, your tip is not just an opportunity for you to express your relative displeasure at the temperature of the food when you arrived at the table. Your tip is an opportunity to give her gas money or Advil so she can mask the pain of standing on her feet all day. Might be a couple bucks to you, but it means a lot to her. When you go to buy something at a big box store, remember, those prices are so low because the people who work there are making so little. So if they're grumpy or unhelpful, it might be because they have to make work two jobs to make ends meet. And they just found out they've got to buy new tires for their car, and so it takes six months to come out of that hole. When you go to a hotel, remember, it's not just magic fairies that clean your room while you're gone. Those are real people earning 7 or $8 an hour that are making your bed, picking up your towel, throwing away your trash. And they've got bosses who are pushing them to work as hard as they can, to turn over rooms as fast as they can. My wife used to work housekeeping. She remembers that. So when we go stay at a hotel, she makes me strip the sheets and pick up the towels and put them all in a pile in the center of the bed to make their job as easy as possible. That's part of what it means to remember the poor. It's not forgetting that they exist. Resisting the temptation to live in a little bubble where the only problems that exist are first world problems and everyone you know and everyone you meet basically has it all together. So if you're here today, and this is an application for you, if you're here today and you are rich, which, and by that I mean if you have a secure income, you've got a reliable food source, you've got housing and clothing, then you need to remember not everyone is like you. Most people are not like you. Most people are poor and in desperate need. Remember the poor. 
Of course, God doesn't just want us to cognitively remember the poor. He wants us to ask, act. So remembering the poor also means that you take action to help the poor. Obviously, when Peter said to Paul, hey, remember the poor, he wasn't just saying, don't forget about them. Like, just make, think about them every once in a while. He wanted Paul to do something. And, you know, Paul did. When Paul went to churches, you can read this throughout the New Testament, when Paul went to various churches and planted new churches or wrote letters to them, he was always talking about this collection that he was taking for the Christians back in Jerusalem. He was raising money because they were poor. They had famine and poverty. And, and so Paul is saying, yeah, all you relatively richer Gentiles living in Greece where things are going well, you should give money to help the Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul takes a collection, he gathers that, and he delivers it. That's what he did to remember the poor, not just thinking about them, but taking action. And so must we. But I think this is where we run aground a lot because the problem is so big. Once you open your eyes and start remembering the poor, you see there are so many opportunities to help. It gets overwhelming. You don't know where to start, and so we shut down and do nothing. So let me close with a bite-sized plan to help us take some action. And I've got these written on your note-taking outline. I'm pretty sure I didn't even leave blanks to fill in, so you just got this, right? This is on your sheet, a plan of attack to, make us, to help us help the poor. First, Pick one charity that helps the poor and regularly give money to it. A couple elements that are helpful here. First, pick one. Now, I'm not saying if, if you already support multiple charities, stop. But I'm just saying if, if you don't yet, pick one. Don't feel like you have to solve all the world's problems at once. Find one thing. Don't get burned out. Find one thing. Something that resonates with you. A group that is working to help solve a problem that you'd love to see solved and throw your support behind that group. It could be an international group, a local group. They might be focused on health care or clean water or human trafficking or domestic abuse or drug rehab or whatever. There's lots of things, right? Pick one and begin to support it and support it regularly. So don't make this be one of those, like, I saw the telethon, I felt guilty, I gave money, now I'm done. But really commit to say, yes, this is important. I'm going to support this. I'm going to you know, make it like another bill that you pay every month with that level of regularity and urgency. That helps us to fight the tendency of forgetting. Because as you give, and here's one of the cool things, most ministries that you give to support, if you become a giver, they begin to send you information. Right? They'll follow up monthly or so, and they'll say, here's what's going on. And you'll be more connected and you'll have a greater awareness of what's happening in the world or with that ministry. And that will help you to keep it on your mind and remember the poor. And the more you remember the poor, the more you'll grow in your passion for helping the poor, and the more likely you will be to take the second step, which is to find a way to be personally involved in helping the poor. Find a way to be personally involved. See, giving money is great, it's helpful, it's necessary. And if you've been giving money to charities for a long time, that is wonderful. I want to affirm you in that. Please keep doing it. That's great. But if all you've been doing is giving money, you're missing out. Because God doesn't just want us to give money. He wants us to love people in real life. So I encourage you, give money. But also find a way to get personally involved. I'm going to try, as leader of this church, I'm going to try to give us more opportunities 
throughout the year to do this. Um, we've got one on our calendar already. You saw it in your bulletin of going to help out in the Midwest food bank. It's not, it's not going to solve global hunger, but it's something that we can do. Okay, now I'm going to try to be more regular at that, but if you've been here for any amount of time, you know me. You know I'm bad at this. So if you really want to do something, I hope you do, then I'm going to just push it back on you and say you should take responsibility for yourself and your schedule and your calling and figure out something that you can do. Maybe you just need to call up the local school district and say, do you need a tutor? Our teachers are nodding yes. <laughs> right? Or call up the Southside Mission or the Peoria Rescue Mission or the Heart House in Eureka and say, put me to work. What can I do? Some of you know that Jen and I have, have done a little bit of work with Safe Families, which is a program to have kids stay in your house. Maybe that's something where, where you want to say, yeah, I want to be a part of that project. Okay, keep your eyes open and find something to do. But again, not everything. Something. This is a place to start. And, and you know, I know, even as I say this, some of you should be up here teaching me. You are light years ahead of me in this. So keep it up. Help the rest of us get where you are. But if this is convicting for you, don't get so overwhelmed that you do nothing. Start with one thing and see what God does. Let's pray.